Welcome to Cease Fire Now, KYRS Thin Air Community Radio, where we focus on political conflicts and wars throughout the world from the position of responsibility for U.S. imperialism. I'm your host, Russell Webster. Today I'm joined by local activists for discussion on Palestine and other topics. First, some updates. Mass starvation is spreading through war-ridden Gaza. Some say that Palestinians are being pushed toward a third intifada, or uprising. Israel killed another journalist targeting their house in Gaza. Journalist Iba Abdella and her eight-year-old daughter were killed. U.S.-Israel have killed more than 100 journalists in Gaza since October 7th, 2023. This is a continuation of war on terror tactics. 700 journalists were killed in Syria in just 10 years, reports Rami Jara. South Africa brought formal charges of genocide against Israel to the International Court of Justice, or the ICJ. While a formal ruling will likely take years, the immediate goal is an advisement to the UN Security Council for a ceasefire. The president of the International Criminal Court is an American, and the United States holds veto power at the UN Security Council. During the war on Palestine, the U.S. has provided Israel $10.7 million per day. U.S. Israel has killed 33,977 Palestinians since October 7th. Israel is holding 7,360 Palestinians hostage in Israeli prisons without charges, including children. Reports of torture and starvation mount in Israeli prisons. I'm happy to have local activists with me today. They're from a local organization that is also national. It's called Veterans for Peace. I'm also a member. Uh, That's how I met them recently. Uh, Our chapter is Veterans for Peace, Spokane, Chapter 35. Uh, Welcome both to uh, Ceasefire Now. Thank you, Rush. Nice to be here. Thanks, Rush. Okay, so I just want to ease into this and and orient the audience of of who who we all are and uh, how we got here, basically. So uh, if one of you all can just... Tell us who you are. Maybe just give us a real short story, uh, and then uh, how you became conscious um, at being veterans. Uh, how you became conscious of you know the evils of of war wholesale, so becoming uh, anti-war or for peace. How you came to Veterans for Peace, and uh, well, let's let's start there. Who, who, how about you, Rich? Oh, yes. Uh, good evening or afternoon, folks. Uh, I'm Robert Richard. I uh, am a Vietnam-era veteran. I did uh, protest as a 17-year-old in uh, Vietnam-era marches in Washington, D.C., and uh, local ones in uh, where I grew up in West Michigan, Uh the uh, I also met uh, an admiral after that that was in uh, Hanoi, and uh, he said 
that was fine with him, and he wanted to shake my hand, and he said he had no personal grievances against Jane Fonda or anyone like that. Hmm. And uh, I went a little further in my service. I was in Operation Deep Freeze in Antarctica, and then I uh, ended up going on uh, aircraft carriers for a while because I was in aviation, naval aviation. And uh, I got stuck going to the uh, Persian Gulf War in 1991, trying to do 20 years and uh, get some of that good Uncle Sugar retainer money every month. Hmm. But I, I kind of dropped that idea. I didn't want to go on after that. But uh, I met uh, John Kerry once at, at that march in 1971, and, uh, and I met other veterans that were aware of uh, U.S. imperialism and would talk about it. And uh, I uh, always like to talk political science. And uh, and uh, I, I did get my grand tour of Europe as a Mediterranean sailor. I was on three different aircraft carriers and pulled into uh, almost every port in Europe. And uh, then, of course, in... Uh, Got to go to Egypt once also, and, of course, uh, the United Arab Emirates and Abu Dhabi and et cetera, et cetera, Dubai. Uh, I saw how that uh, first uh, Operation Desert Storm went, and uh, I wasn't impressed at all, but I got through it somehow. That's all I got. Thanks. Yeah, do, you, do you remember sort of when you, uh, what really, like, turned you sort of so to speak from the from the person who joined the military to the person who who was, was against it I, the way they uh sucker punched i thought uh, iraq into that kuwait war mm. uh i thought was i i i, I couldn't believe uh, all that and then they they wanted me to reenlist and they said uh and this was in February 1992. They said, yeah, we're going on to Yugoslavia to help the Bosnians because we don't want to look like we're, we're just killing uh, Arabs over here. And I said, oh, well, I, I can't see any reason for going into the Balkans. And I'd heard about Madeleine Albright back in the 80s in the Reagan administration. And uh, I didn't want any part of that, so I opted out and took the separation bonus that was it for me okay what about you george what how, how did you get here uh thanks uh, russell like uh, uh richard i'm i'm a u.s navy veteran i served from 1961 to 65 and my unit was involved in the cuban missile crisis which you may recall in October 1962 uh, the united states under president john f kennedy declared a blockade of Cuba because uh, the U.S. believed that the Russians had put uh, intermediate nuclear missiles onto the island of Cuba. Uh, fortunately, the diplomats did their job. Uh, John F. Kennedy and his people and uh, Nikita Khrushchev, who was the Russian premier at the time, actually came to an agreement that avoided a nuclear war, but I'll just tell a brief anecdote that, that kind of turned me. Um, as our ship sailed from Norfolk, Virginia, I was on the USS Vermilion, part of an amphibious uh, potential landing force on Cuba. 
the commanding officer called us all into the wardroom and said, I want you all, if you're sailing tomorrow with us, to have your last will and testament on my desk by 9 o'clock in the morning or you're not going. And we said, why, why should we do that? We were all young. Uh, we, we were naive, I think. And he said, the reason I want your last will and testament is because none of us may be coming back. Wow. Uh, I, w I was a young man at the time. I didn't really understand uh, the issue that we were going down to. And uh, coming back, I remember talking to a young Marine officer on the ship. He had two bars on his uh, shoulders, and he thought he was pretty hot stuff. Uh, I had gone to officer candidate school earlier. I was uh, one rank below him, and he said, I said to him, aren't you glad the diplomats did their job and we came to a peaceful accord with the Russians and we didn't have to go to war? And he said to me, I'll never forget this, he said, no, I'm disappointed. I really wanted to go into Cuba and kick some ass. Hmm. Th those were his exact words. And I, I said, excuse me? I said, do you realize how many men in your unit would have been killed or wounded or how many civilians you might have been responsible for killing? And he said, uh, I, I have no interest in that. I, I really wanted to do my job. That's what I do as a Marine. I kill people. Whoa. And so I said, this friendship is over. And that was the beginning, I think, of a raising of consciousness where I realized that uh, the U.S. military is uh, uh, sometimes uh, used for nefarious purposes, which we can get into a bit later, but... Uh, I, I think civilian control of the military is very important, and uh, I think my military experience informs my current attitude about the issues fake, facing us right now as Americans. Oh, thank, thanks for sharing that, George. It's a very personal um, story, to, very personal stories to tell. I wasn't planning to talk about uh, myself or how I got here, but I'll just quickly, since I'm also... A veteran and uh, part of Veterans for Peace, there was a, uh, I, I don't know, I can't remember their name off the top of my head, but there was a veteran, uh, IDF, Israeli uh, veteran from uh, Israel who was on Democracy Now! recently telling uh, their story. And when they were telling their story, something in it sort of, created a connection in me where I realized, oh, I think that there's something that I went through in my journey that is similar to theirs. So I, I don't remember the exact circumstances, but they were, they were on their duty. They were doing, um, they were sending planes out um, to essentially uh, bomb Palestinians or do other military activities. And when they, they came back to base, they had a, a, an extreme anxiety attack and they, at the front gates. So they couldn't they just felt like they, they just couldn't go into the base and, and they'd never felt that before. Um, this was, a, uh, you know, a, a supposedly well-indoctrinated uh, Israeli uh, IDF soldier. And um, I had a similar thing happen when I was deployed. Um, it was during uh, the war on terror. So it was in the early 2000s. And it was, it was, closer to the end of my, my enlistment where I would be done with the military. And I had, I had a, an anxiety attack that and I had never had one before. And I was actually on duty. I was, I was, a 
I was a, a, essentially a supervisor. I was a mechanic on big, heavy aircraft and on a, on a night shift. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, I just had this extreme panic and extreme anxiety. I had no idea what it was. I got through it and just sort of um, tried to forget about it. And then once I got out of the military, uh, the anxiety just continued and continued. And I, and I started to become more and more conscious as well. But right before that, I had, um, right before that anxiety attack, I had become uh, more and more, uh, I had been, been made more and more conscious that maybe uh, what was going on, uh, there was more to going, that what was going on with the, the U.S. imperialism in the Middle East than I knew because there were protesters outside the base in Spain where I was. And I, you know, why are, why are people protesting? And so those things started um, penetrating into my consciousness. And I think that is, that can't be disconnected with, with what caused that anxiety. And so I just, over the years, I continued to, to sort of dig and dig more and more and look for truth. And, um, and I became increasingly conscious of uh, U.S. imperialism and what I was a part of. And, and now, you know, we're at the stage where we're trying to um, we're trying to claim, uh, you know, be responsible for this, and uh, we're analyzing U.S. imperialism, and then eventually I became uh, conscious of Palestine. That didn't happen, so I I became uh, essentially anti-war in in the uh, around the two late two thousand early two thousands. And then I became conscious of Palestine in 2016, so quite recently. And that was connected to my consciousness of Black Lives Matter. And Black Lives Matter uh, came from my consciousness in Occupy, so you can see a sort of lineage. So I'd like to ask you two as well, how did you come to, to really become engaged with and, and conscious of Palestine and the Israeli occupation? Do you remember when that sort of took hold and, per, and and maybe was there something that sort of triggered that? Was there something that, that you said, okay, I need to, I need to pay attention to this. What's going on here? Yes, that's a good question, uh, Russ. Uh, I have traveled to Palestine twice, um, way before the current uh, conflicts there. Uh, I'm a practicing Christian and I'm interested in the whole uh, phenomenon of the state of Israel and Palestine. And of course, uh, Jesus, who's the central figure of Christianity, uh, was born in, in uh, Palestine, Israel, and uh, that's where he lived, in, in the area of Galilee. So at first I was interested in Israel for religious reasons, but then I became aware of the politics of the area and how much the United States was involved in those politics, and I began to read and study, uh, I'm going to say, in the mid-2000s, a little after you, uh, I became aware of, of the issues of Palestine-Israel. And I, I remember our current president, Joe Biden, said as a senator in 1986, he said, if there wasn't a Palestine, this is a direct quote, he said, if there wasn't, if there wasn't an Israel, we would have to create it. So the United States was involved in the creation of Israel from the beginning when 19, in 1948 when President Harry Truman recognized the state of Israel as a country. And there was an immediate war in which 700,000 Palestinians were displaced and removed from uh, the area of the state of Israel. 
there were subsequent wars that I followed uh, that in which Israel took over the occupied territories, uh, West Bank, Gaza, and uh, then they seized the Golan Heights, and for a while they occupied the Sinai Desert until Egypt took it back. But without getting into all the complicated politics of Israel-Palestine, he became aware of the suffering of the Palestinian people uh, in the occupation, both by visiting there twice and talking to Palestinian leaders, mainly religious leaders, and the, the moderator of my Presbyterian church was a Palestinian-American at one point, and uh, I, had, I had some conversations with him about it. So that's where I became aware, and I've since had uh, friends who were whose families have been from Palestine. So that's where my my first consciousness of Palestine began. Uh, I would have to say uh, back in the 1960s, Russell, I, I became aware of Palestine. Uh, <clears throat> it was always in the news back then. I can recall the first time seeing uh, Anwar Sadat, and, you know, they used to call him... Uh, uh, derogatory term the you probably heard of it the raghead or something yeah. like that. and uh, <clears throat> my uh, grandfather had a uh, had a one of his second store was uh, was an old a and p uh, that he bought they they liked him he worked for them for a while too and uh, he bought that in the 30s and uh he divided it in half, and the Assyrian man owned the other side, and he made a bar out of it. Hmm. And uh, we were friends with them, and uh, and we always ate the Greek Orthodox food too. And uh, and Israel would come up once in a while, and we'd talk about Israel. And uh, uh, my great grandfather, who I knew uh, up through age eight. Uh, had an Armenian first name. We had some Armenian ancestry going back to the 10th century, but we were, we were French-Canadian uh, people, and, uh, you know, I have some Native in me, too. And, uh, you know, everything from Diné to Dorset in me on my dad's side. And uh, and I had friends also that uh, were, you know, anti-Semitic, and uh, we'd talk about it, and... Uh, and you'd run into anti-Semitism in the service. And, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, so uh, you tried to be, uh, give everyone the benefit of the doubt. And uh, But it just seems like you know, it's always getting, you're hearing more and more lies, more and more propaganda. Uh, I, I remember reading that uh, book of Matt Taibbi's Hate and... and uh, he talked about that uh, Christopher uh, Christopher Lash had the quote. Uh, I think it was from his book, uh, "The Revolt of the Elites." Uh, Propaganda seeks to create in the public a chronic sense of crisis, and that always seemed to me me wow. me about what was going on all the time about the West Bank and the Gaza Strip, and it was always in the news, in and out of the news. Yeah. It, it, it always bothered my conscience. And we're seeing that right now in real time. That, that propaganda is no joke. It's really taken a hold. Uh, we'll talk more about that uh, when we come back from our break.
Soul. Welcome back to Ceasefire Now. I'm your host, Russell Webster, speaking with members of Veterans for Peace Spokane, which I'm a member. This is Bob and George. Welcome back. And we were just having a good good conversation over the break, and we're going to get back into Palestine, focusing on Palestine, the war on terror, nuclear war. We're making these connections here. Uh, gentlemen, you were just discussing... Um, you took a, you said you took a trip to the World Trade Center. Is that right? No, I'm sorry. Uh, we took a trip 
Ground Zero, which is a peace activist center outside of the Bangor Trident submarine base in Bangor, Washington State. Gotcha. Would you like to speak on uh, your experience with that and, and, and what that was about? Yeah, I think Robert actually paved the way. He went over before we did, and then the three of us, Tom Charles, myself, and Robert, went over on August 6th for their annual commemoration of the United States dropping the atomic weapon on uh, Hiroshima, and then they do it again three days later for Nagasaki. Uh, this Ground Zero Peace Center uh, is staffed uh, all year round. People live there. They're full-time peace activists, mostly retired, so they have income from a foundation that has bought the land and the house where we stayed. Richard camped in his tent outside the house. They have about 10 acres there, and Tom and I stayed in the house in the comfort of a bed. But uh, the purpose of this Ground Zero, which has been there for over 25 years, is to bring to the public consciousness uh, U.S. involvement in, in development of nuclear weapons. Uh, some don't know that there are more nuclear weapons in the state of Washington than in any other state in the United States. And the reason for that is, of course, we developed the nuclear weapons at Hanover Reservation to our south near Walla Walla during World War II. That's where the first atomic weapon was, was made. And uh, then later... Um, the Trident Submarine Base, which is, houses something like 16 American Trident submarines, uh, all armed with nuclear weapons, each one of those submarines could, could wipe out 16 Russian cities or any other cities in the United States. So we went over there for three days. We had that fellowship experience. I got to know Robert better and Tom Charles, who's our nuclear weapons guy in Veterans for Peace 35. So right now, Israel has, we know Israel has at least 50 nuclear weapons. We know this from a whistleblower from the IDF who's now in prison. I, I think he got recently out, but an Israeli whistleblower revealed that the Israelis have at least 50 nuclear weapons hmm. uh, in their arsenal. And so we're very concerned that, that the, the Gaza genocide, which we're talking a little bit about today, could escalate into a more regional war and could, might, I hope not, lead to a, a bigger confrontation in which at least uh, tactical and strategic nuclear weapons could be used. But maybe Bob could speak to our experience at Ground Zero. Oh, sure. Uh, yes, that was a good, big, that was the big one, uh, the August 6th through August 9th, the three-day event. I, I went to the Mother's Day one the previous year. That was like a one-day event. That, that was a great time. Uh, that was a good time. I got to know George much better and also Charles. Uh, also, I learned from uh, a captain, a retired Navy captain, that the three Seawolf submarines are also based at Bangor, the hmm. new Jimmy Carter Seawolf. Oh, okay. submarines. So one of them grounded there in the Straits of Taiwan hmm. last year. I might You might have seen that in the news. Uh, pretty interesting. Yeah, that stuff. was Captain Tom Rogers who actually turned 180 after commanding a nuclear submarine. He became, and discharged from the Navy as a forest striper, he became a peace activist and he was one of our leaders 
in uh, in blockading the gate there when, on August sixth. Yep, that was last fall. Uh, he we marched with, we followed him down to the gate. He led the led the group. Tom Rogers, he's a great guy. Well, you don't you don't hear a lot about nuclear weapons or nuclear arms uh, nowadays. It's just not something that's often uh, spoke about, and I get the sense that it's just not. Really on folks' minds that people aren't thinking about the nuclear threat in the way they had during, say, the Cold War during the uh, you know second half of the 20th century. The way I understand it, I I was born. um, I'm an 80s kid, but I the way I've come to understand uh, the you know the 50s, 60s. And then maybe uh, I think even into the seventies, it was raging. It was this this fear, this generalized fear uh, that, uh, and I'm sure there's a psychology to that because it's the country that used the weapons, uh, the only country that used the weapons in those ways. And so this generalized fear that the world was going to end at any moment, and there was going to be some sort of nuclear holocaust, and that. That uh, not that 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 wasn't a reality, but that that was played up uh, to, as we were talking about propaganda earlier, that played up to sort of control the the herd, you know, to herd the masses. And um, but in my life, for the most part, nuclear the threat of nuclear war has not been a common theme. It's been, uh, if anything, uh, definitely now it's you know terrorism. And we're supposed to be. Uh, afraid that there's a uh, terrorists are coming over the uh, the the borders, and uh, w- that we have we have to just continue to build walls, and we have to continue to dump uh, money into the uh, Pentagon and into other uh, military projects around the world, rather than uh, trying to find the source, trying to find what's underlying. Uh, all of this, so uh, I am I am a bit stunned that uh, with what's going on right now, with uh, the genocide and the war on Palestine, which has become a generalized war, as everyone predicted um, throughout the region now, that the fact that Israel is a nuclear armed state. I think last I, I read was 90 warheads, but I think 50, it only takes one, right? Right. So you got a nuclear-armed state in the in the Middle East that has not signed the non-proliferation treaty, is, is refusing to, as long with the United States. The United States is also uh, a nuclear-armed state, armed to its teeth. And to me, that is... Uh, extremely concerning that uh, especially with the rhetoric and the propaganda concerning uh, states like Iran and uh, this sort of uh, they've the United States and uh, its establishment and all, all of the networks have created this extreme paranoia and hatred even of uh Muslim people and Arab people uh, throughout the world, that's been the campaign for the last, throughout the war on terror, is to demonize um, the so-called, you know, 
enemy states and the enemies of the state. And that propaganda, that harmful propaganda that's, that's creating this sort of mob mentality is only further fueling the threat of uh, a, a nuclear confrontation that would only take one state you know, to uh, deploy it. And we're, we, immediately we heard for calls uh, from uh, you know, Israel, from, from certain sectors in the far right, calling for using nuclear weapons early on in the war. And these are people in positions of power and in positions uh, clo- closer to positions to be able to do something like that. So this is, this is a serious uh, matter, and I think that making these connections between uh, nu- the nuclear threat is uh, instrumental. Trying to get this, this, the, the present generations back up to speed and, and realizing that uh, it, doesn't, it doesn't even require a, uh, a person to deploy the weapons. It could be a computer malfunction. We've had, we've had uh, those happen in the past, and we've narrowly escaped uh, nuclear confrontation because of um, malfunctions. But going back to the topic, there was something else you were uh, referencing, Bob, during the break uh, that you wanted to discuss. Did you want to go into that further? Oh, about uh, uh, nuclear weapons, or not nuclear weapons, weapons that Israel exports. Yeah. They, they, I found out on uh, uh, Democracy Now! the other morning, uh, they, they uh, quoted that Israel sold $12 billion worth of weapons uh, last year, exported to various countries. And they, they're, the, Gaza is a, a proving ground for these weapons that they, that they use, and they have all these sophisticated. Even they're even even using AI for some of these targeting on these apartment houses, you know. And they, they and the statistics that they're killing are about the same as what the the uh, Hamas Humane Society is reporting. It's the same figures actually. Uh, and that's kind of uh, sad. Uh, I I pulled into Haifa in the 70s and the 80s and the 90s on the uh, Nimitz, the Eisenhower, and the America. Uh, I I crossed the line of death uh, in the Gulf of Sidra under the Jimmy Carter regime. And uh, I remember walking out on the flight deck at night. And there's Tripoli just a couple miles away. And you could feel the, the electronic countermeasures just making my hair fly up into the sky from all all the jamming we were doing. We were just playing around, just exercising our right to be within their territorial waters, you know, and... Uh, I think but, we should uh, mention one more thing, Robert. Uh, the, the Israeli Navy attacked... The Israeli Navy attacked uh, the USS Liberty oh, yeah. uh, during uh, one of the wars, one of the previous wars over there, and the my ship also sailed in the Mediterranean. We knew we knew it wasn't a mistake. It wasn't at the same time, but we had transponders on our ship that communicated with the Israelis to make sure they knew we were in the area. So we knew that the attack on the USS Liberty by the Israeli Defense Force, in which uh, over 30 American sailors were killed, was not a mistake, although our president at the time, Lyndon Johnson, said it was a mistake. We knew it wasn't a mistake because of these transponder communications we had with the Israeli Defense Force. 
But what we were discussing with Russ in the break was uh, the the heavy American support of the Israeli Defense Forces now, unconditionally. We will not use the word ceasefire. We use the word pause. Uh, the American leaders say we are for pauses, but we're not for a ceasefire, because if we had a ceasefire, then the uh, Hamas forces could regroup. Well, if one of the objectives of the Israeli government is to return all the hostages, then they're working against their own goals by continuing their heavy bombardment of all parts of Gaza now. There are no parts of Gaza that are, that are safe. We know from earlier in the program when Russ said uh, tens of thousands of Palestinians have been killed, including over 8,000 children and 7,000 more that are unaccounted for. This, this has got to stop. The, the, what we need is an immediate ceasefire that the United States should, should demand from the Israeli government. And then, after the ceasefire, an exchange hostage of some sort that's agreeable to both sides, and then a long-term solution. So ceasefire is what we need now, the name of this program. We need it now. We need it this minute so that other lives will not be uh, taken but so far, the Israeli government has not seen it that way, and uh, it seems like, although the United States says with the mouth of its diplomats, we would like the uh, um, to minimize civilian casualties, that's that's not what's being done. The Israelis are maximizing uh, civilian casualties. And then if we turn to Ukraine, uh, it's a similar issue, although a different historical set of circumstances where the United States is supporting the Ukrainian government in its war with Russia. And billions of American dollars are being spent on both wars. So I think we really need to examine ourselves as Americans and say not in our name. Oh, yeah, George, I beg to differ there about your Ukraine stance, I think. Uh, It's it's a U.S. war with Russia in Ukraine. uh, Alan Dulles back in the 40s started supporting Nazis right away in Ukraine and, and the CIA had been supporting Nazis right through 1991 and the NED started taking over when it was created in 1984 and started taking over the Ukraine project uh, right along there as uh, uh, Brezhnev uh, took over in Russia and uh, uh, so you're saying it's a proxy war, Richard, between... It's a proxy war between the U.S. and, and Russia in Ukraine. Uh, that's always been the goal with since the, the red hunt, witch hunt. Uh, I'd like to say that in Italy, they, they're starting to uh, stick to their guns about they don't want any nuclear weapons in their country since 75. But the, the U.S. can always neither confirm nor deny. And they, at least they, they, they would let the, the Nimitz-class carriers into Naples with their nuclear weapons that the Navy would neither confirm nor deny. And I'd like to point out to Russell that that's also really Israel's uh, uh, head trip about neither confirming nor denying nuclear weapons. I Personally, I think the people I've met in Israel, if I, th- I think if Israel had nuclear weapons, they would have used them by now. But that's just my opinion. But Another point I have to say is when we went over to the Persian Gulf with five carriers, George W. H. W. Bush removed all nuclear weapons off 
U.S. aircraft carriers. And I think that's because the Saudis and the other Arab countries did not want U.S. aircraft carriers in the Persian Gulf with nuclear weapons on them. And so George H.W. Bush, to his credit, at least gets credit for taking them nuclear weapons off U.S. aircraft carriers. Now, if Russia really wanted to wipe out the U.S. with one nuke, they could have took out five aircraft carriers back then. And I don't think Russia is our enemy, nor is China our enemy. Our enemy is imperialism or hegemony, U.S. hegemony. Thank you. Well, there's definitely... uh there's definitely facts that are indisputable. Uh, Noam Chomsky often talks; it refers to the early '90s, the uh, the end of the Cold War, that agreement. The he, they called it a gentleman's agreement uh, that you know the United States and slash NATO would not move one inch to the east. Uh, you know, after after Reagan's you know famously you know tear tear down that wall. Well, the West was not supposed to continue to encroach. And to continue uh, towards Russia, so the uh, the logical explanation or the logical consequence would be for uh, at some point Russia to um, defend itself in some way or to uh, have to react um, as states do um, to this uh, encroachment. Um, so that that's uh, there's definitely that's. That plays a part into it, and then there's also the uh, the, the widely uh, different reactions to the Russian invasion of Ukraine and to Israel's uh, invasion of, of Gaza. You know, so th- those those are important things for the audience to really think about, and why why Americans uh, react so differently uh, when it's the so-called enemy uh, invading. But when it's an ally invading, it, it's, everything's different now. Um, and so suddenly, journalists, uh, in, you know, in the corporate media, have a very difficult time analyzing um, Western ag- aggression. And then one one other point before I take a, sh- a real quick break, I wanted to talk about that AI. So that AI is an important uh, part of the current case for genocide because. It takes, uh, and that's just one one uh, of the uh, pieces of evidence. There's many different factors, but just the a- that AR- AI factor alone. That when Israel is, uh, as it calls it, mowing the lawn in Gaza and flattening buildings and and killing Palestinian uh, Palestinian families, it uh, knows who it's killing. So it has. It has data on everyone. It knows where uh, everyone lives. It knows how many people are in each uh, house, apartment, building. And so when that AI generates a so-called target, it also tells them how many Palestinians are likely, uh, Palestinian civilians are likely to be killed. So every time they uh, flatten one of those buildings uh, or those hospitals, their computer program tells them a number of about how many Palestinians they can expect to be to kill, and that, uh, for one thing, is is not legal, uh, obviously, and it's not uh, right, <laughs> it's not moral, and it's not ethical. The point is, uh, it's intentional. 
So they are intentionally uh, killing civilians, and that's only one piece of the of the puzzle that uh, proves that. So we're really cons- uh, the main concern is about how the world is going to uh, react to the findings and the real test uh, for a global power and taking uh, holding the United States and Israel uh, accountable. That's the major concern, and that's why we are in unprecedented times. We are in times where we are concerned about uh, multiple genocides happening throughout the world. We are uh, concerned about uh, climate change and global warming, which the war is also uh, expediating. And we're also uh, concerned about the nuclear threat, uh, amongst other things. And we're attempting to make those connections. uh, And we're going to continue to talk and make those connections uh, after this short break. Welcome back to Ceasefire Now, KYRS Thin Air Radio. I'm your host, Russell Webster. I have with me today a couple uh, folks from Veterans for Peace Local Spokane. And we're discussing uh, imperialism, Palestine, the nuclear threat, amongst other things. I have with me George and Bob today. And we're going to discuss, uh, George wanted to bring up some local uh, local issues. And I, I'm very thankful for that because these are some things that the audience really needs to hear about. George, uh, what would you like to talk about first? Sorry. Years ago in the 60s, we, we had the phrase, uh, think globally, act locally. Mm. And so we've been talking about some world issues in which uh, the United States is very deeply involved in, in the military interventions abroad. But now let's bring it home to Spokane City. Uh, Tom Charles and I and others from Veterans for Peace, Chapter 35, who we meet uh, every month on the second Wednesday, uh, all veterans and non-veterans are welcome to come to our meetings. They're open and transparent. We met last night. And we, we uh, lobbied the city council about a year ago. Tom Charles and I and others sat down with each council member of the city council and discussed the nuclear freeze resolution and ordinance, which the city council subsequently passed by a 5-2 majority proof, uh, veto proof majority. So it is now the law of the city, the nuclear free ordinance that says the city government of Spokane will not do any business from buying stationery and pens to police cars and radios with any company that has anything to do with a nuclear weapons industry. That would include General Motors, uh, Raytheon, uh, Boeing, that the city government now by law cannot do business with them. There is a waiver that if the city cannot find the product, say a police radio, from any other company than one that does do business with the nuclear weapons industry, that that a waiver can be passed on a case-by-case basis. But we have that law now in place. The other issue locally that your listeners might be interested in is the city council itself passed a resolution right after October 7th giving unconditional support to the state of Israel in its attack on on Gaza. And since then, they've backtracked from that unconditional support. That That was a unanimous resolution by the city council 
that they brought up, citizens didn't bring it up, the, the council itself decided on that pro-Israel resolution that is now being renegotiated to have a more balanced approach. Of course, the state of Israel has a right to exist and defend itself. But also the Palestinian people have a right to defend themselves, and they have a right to exist. And how's that working out right now? So that the uh, both sides have a case, both sides have the right to defend themselves, but the U.S. official position is for a two-state solution in the long run. And I think once we have a ceasefire that should have happened yesterday, that then we can sit down and talk about the long-range goals. But those are the two local issues that listeners might be interested in. We have a nuclear-free ordinance that's on the books whereby the city of Spokane will not purchase any product that has anything to do with the nuclear weapons industry. And the other is the resolution that's now being redrafted to be a more balanced resolution. Bob, you might have something to say about that. I I hate to cut it short, but... We've uh, we're, we're run out of time. Uh, we've had a great show, great discussion. I hope to have you on again in the future. Yeah, be and get yeah, the thumbs be up. To come be back. happy to. <laughs> be glad to come back. Be happy to. Right on. So you've been listening to Ceasefire Now on KYRS Thin Air Community Radio. Thank you for listening. Next week we'll be on Thursday live at 3 p.m. Pacific Standard Time.